say you love this country, you say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. You say you love this country and the freedoms that we share, but America is dying. I don't see no love nowhere. They say America is dying. They say America is dead. But there's a lot of people lying. And there's a lot left unsaid. But we got people in the streets freezing while they sleep with no shoes on their feet. And we got people in there the streets cheating on their wives. There is seldom been a sharper divide in America over the view of an election. Trump's people claim that he really won in a landslide and was cheated by massive vote fraud. The Democrats and the media brush it off as crazy, unfounded conspiracy talk and irresponsible, un-American rhetoric that undermines faith in free and fair election. I've made my view very clear early on in calling on Joe Biden and the Democrats to simply agree to work in a bipartisan fashion to audit the vote, to reassure voters that they could trust the results. If there's nothing amiss, then they should be eager to prove it, dispel the suspicions and move on. Instead, the accusations have devolved lower every day. You're crazy. You're a thief. Trump is a liar. And a new poll shows how corrosive this has already been. A recent Rasmussen survey of likely voters found that 59% of Americans think mail-in ballots have led to voter fraud. That is 86% of the Republicans and 36% Democrats. Now, a new Rasmussen survey of likely voters find that 61% think Trump should concede to Biden. That includes 84% of Democrats, 59 independents, and 37 Republicans. Were you polled? I wasn't either. But here's the weird part. Even though 61% think Trump should concede, 47% think that it's likely Democrats stole or destroyed Trump ballots to win. That means that not only do nearly half of the voters not trust the election results, but as many as 14% apparently believe or suspect the election was stolen. But Trump Trump should concede anyway. Really? We're literally watching our nation being brought to our knees by spineless people claiming to be Americans. Democrats are rushing to blame this apparent loss of faith in elections on Trump refusing to concede and making wild accusations of fraud and conspiracy. But they are conveniently overlooking their own part in preparing the ground by spending four years making wild, unsubstantiated claims that the 2016 election was rigged by Russia and that Trump is an illegitimate president. They even made part leader and celebrity out of Stacey Abrams, who has yet to concede her loss in Georgia in 2018. And she's currently leading their drive to win Georgia's two Senate seats right now, even as prominent Democrats openly call for liberals to move temporarily to Georgia and commit voter fraud by voting in the runoff. It is not healthy for this nation to have so many people start to believe, whether that belief is accurate or not, that they cannot trust our election process. It's like ignoring a crack in your home's foundation. Restoring their trust is going to take both parties working to pass bipartisan reform to make our elections more secure. One top priority should be an end to the push to simply mail in ballots to every name 
on unvetted, out-of-date voter lists, which even 39% of the Democrats see an open door to voter fraud. That's how we treat junk mail, and ballots are not junk. Unfortunately, as Arizona Representative Debbie Lasko points out, the House of Representatives is already poised to do the opposite of the Democrats win if the Democrats win the Senate seats. They will ram through H.R. 1, a bill that federalizes election laws to remove safeguards, including banning voter ID laws and legalizing ballot harvesting. This is why it's so vital that the Republicans win the Georgia seats so that the Senate can put the brakes on incredibly irresponsible bills like these. Now it's time to tighten the election security and reassure Americans that the system works, not undermine their trust even more. Anyone who would fight even the most basic common sense laws to ensure that every vote is secure and legal is signaling a lack of concern for the disenfranchisement of legal voters and prioritizing the pursuit of their own power over the good of the nation. While the presidential race is spinning into surreal territory, the down-ballot races are getting less attention. But they carry serious national implications as well. For instance, there was the blue wave that did not appear. Republicans were supposed to lose House seats, not retain and flip so many that came close to retaking the majority, which AOC apparently thought they did. Another monumental story that's been largely overlooked was the election results for state legislatures, where redistricting lines will be drawn that will shape the House of Representatives for the next decade. The Democrats were salivating over grabbing that power. But Nate Silver at 538.com points out that not only did Democrats not flip a single state legislative chamber, Republicans shocked them by flipping both the House and the Senate in New Hampshire. Now, Republicans shocked them by flipping both the House and Senate in New Hampshire. Now, Republicans have a huge advantage over redistricting. He wrote, quote, Republicans are set to control the redistricting of 188 congressional seats, or 43% of the entire House of Representatives. And by contrast, Democrats will control the redistricting of, at most, 73 seats, or 17%. Now, of course, legislatures are not to draw districts to their party's advantage, but it happens. That is how we get congressional districts that look like a chalk outline drawn around a dead centipede. When Republicans do it, it's called gerrymandering. When Democrats do it, it's called fairness. Another big election story that didn't pan out was Texas turning blue. Beto O'Rourke writes what Democrats learned from this race and why Texans did not fall for what they were selling. Well, that part's my terminology. As usual with liberals, O'Rourke misses the point again and again. Whenever the left loses, it's always because their messaging was not effective enough. Having billions of dollars in both paid advertising and free friendly media to promote their economic and social policies just was not enough to overcome the lies of the Democrats, playing upon the fears of the poor, uneducated voters. That's 
quite a ringing endorsement for public schools, by the way. He cites as examples lies like Biden will not kill your oil or gas jobs or Biden will not close down the economy. The two things that Biden specifically said he would do before looking at the polls and then backtracking furiously, uh, he forgot his, quote, hell yes, unquote. The Democrats will take away your guns, which is what he's famously said. I'm sure that played out well in Texas, didn't it? He also came close to getting it right when he said that the National Party had ignored Texas border districts and were shocked when Trump got a high percentage of the votes there. But he misreads the reason. It's not because the Democrats did not put in enough ads or outreaching or canvassing. It's because, as always, they assumed racial groups think monolithically, but not as individuals. Latinos living along the border are on the front lines of suffering the negative effects of illegal immigration, including drugs and gang violence. Why would they vote for the open borders and defund the police party? You've all heard the saying, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. That was part of the Democrats' problem in Texas. They assumed that all Latino think alike and their votes belong to the Democrats by divine right. But in Texas, most Latinos are hardworking, God-fearing, church-going, patriotic, pro-family, and pro-life. It's not that they did not hear the Democrats' message. They heard it loud and clear, and they found it terrifyingly radical and rejected it. No amount of slick ads could put enough lipstick on the pig that the Democrats were trying to sell. And if you insist on putting people into categories, at least get the category right. Texas Latinos have their own proud heritage dating back to before Texas was a republic. It is called Tejano, not Latino. And certainly not the annoying PC invention, Latinx. The Democrats' leftists' politics went over with them about as well as they did with the Cubans in Florida. A person that lives in suburban Dallas provided a perfect example. He said the person he knows is most adamantly opposed to illegal immigration. And she's a lady who moved here with her husband from Mexico City. It infuriates her when illegal aliens come to them for jobs in their construction company, assuming that she will hire them because she's Mexican. She said, and her husband, she and her husband had followed the laws waited their turn, studied, took tests, paid fees, and swore an oath to become Americans. She considers it an affront to her beloved adopted homeland for people to break its laws and demand the same rights that they worked hard to earn. What would the one-size-fits-all identity politics make of her? While it's sadly true that the Democrats are making inroads in Texas, many Texans are seeing what allowing them to take over the big cities has led to and are recoiling in horror. Leftists leftists have taken over Austin and between the homelessness, trash, defunding the police and huge spike in violent crime, they're turning the city's motto form keep Austin weird to make Austin unlivable. The biggest problem 
Democrats have in selling their policies are disastrous and anything they gain full control over, they destroy. The biggest opponent is not Republicans. The biggest opponent is reality. But the real problem is that there are also a lot of things that left-wing governance that people can smell a mile away. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. The introduction music and lyrics is entitled America is Dying, But It's Not Too Late by Dave Bray and Jeremy Harrell. Go on over and check out Dave Bray's patriotic music on YouTube. Tonight, I will be going over the five phases of bugging out. And I started the five phases last week. This is a call-in show, so if you want to call in and make a statement, ask a question, or just give your opinion, please feel free. The number is 786-245-8127, or you can call in using Skype through PSN Radio. The number again is 786-245-8127. No matter how much experience we have, no matter how much training we have, There's no end to learning. You continually prepare mentally. You continue to train with like-minded people. In a situation, you have to continue. In the meantime, there's some immediate things that you can do to help yourself in any given emergency situation. The five phases that I touched on last week helps to enhance these next five steps that can help simplify things and make it easy to digest information. Step one is you must be willing to leave. Step two, you must be prepared to leave. Step three, you must be able to leave. Step four, you must know when to leave. And step five, you must be prepared to survive no matter what. So let's hit step one first. Willing to leave deals with emotional and mental preparation. I think the number one thing that kills people in a crisis is their unwillingness to leave their comfort and familiarity behind. You find examples of this in every type of global and natural disaster on record. People quietly watching as their world crumbles around them, paralyzed by an inability to act. This is ultimately due to a lack of context for the experience that's unfolding before them. There's this illusion that It's been propagated by television and movies out there that there are these people who can think clearly in a crisis and make it out without any kind of plan or training. And I think that's a bunch of crap. I'm here to tell you that if you don't prepare yourself in advance, if you don't plan for a crisis, you're not going to make it out unless you're extremely lucky. And I personally would rather not rely on luck. I'd rather rely on skill. Unfortunately, there are some really basic things that you can do to increase your chances of surviving a local or global catastrophe. In the military, back when I was in the Army, eons ago, there's this term that's used when soldiers train. It's called train as you fight. And basically what that means is that you want your training and scenarios and planning to be as realistic as possible. It's an imperative concept because many studies have shown that in crisis, people fall back to their experience and training. Sometimes people do 
ridiculous things because their brain jumps into survival mode. If you don't have any training, you're going to do nothing. That's the one extreme, doing nothing. The next step is doing something incorrectly because you've trained yourself incorrectly. Got the concept, concept should be that you've trained yourself correctly so that you react correctly. Don't end up being one of those people who just starves to death inside their home because they're unable or unwilling to help themselves. You have to help yourself. Nobody's going to help you but you. When I say nobody, I don't mean your immediate family or your team. We'll talk about the people that you're going to get out with and survive with later. I'm talking about taking control and really preparing yourself. Don't wait to do this stuff. It needs to happen right now. You should feel really insecure if you're not prepared. You should continue to feel insecure about your situation until you are prepared. I like to use the simple metaphor to explain what I mean by helping yourself. I use this in a lot of my classes. It's a really simplified idea of what I've just talked about. Imagine that one winter night, you're sleeping in your bed. Suddenly you wake up and it's really cold in the house. All of us have experienced this. You don't have enough blankets on your bed. You know you can't muster the energy to get up because you're too lazy. And go to the hall closet and get yourself another blanket. You just lie there and freeze. You don't sleep. You feel sorry for yourself. Or you can get your lazy butt out of bed and get yourself another blanket. It might seem like a no-brainer, but I know so many people who wouldn't get up to get that blanket to help themselves. In survival situations, you have to help yourself. You cannot start feeling sorry for yourself. You have to do it. If you're cold and don't get up to improve your shelter or get up to do something about it, you're not going to survive. In crisis situations, most people tend to panic. The main reason for that is that they don't know what to do. Either stress really clouds their judgment or decreases their mental acuity or the crisis is so far outside of their normal reality that they simply don't even acknowledge that it's happening. Planning and training are so imperative because you have the opportunity to provide yourself with mental landmarks that will help pull you back to clarity of thought in a stressful situation. You can increase this effect by not just planning out, but acknowledging these landmarks and some of the roadblocks that you're going to hit and creating them in advance with your family and discussing the training. For example, what did you learn? What would you have done differently? A good example of mental landmarks is like in the medical field. There's a concept called ABCD. It's an acronym that's used by medical professionals to refer to airway, breathing, circulation, and disability, which refers to maybe a potential spinal injury or any other type of injury. In a real crisis situation, medical professionals are trained, no matter what is going on around them and their patient, to always go back to the ABCDs. It gives them a reference point. You start with airway. You go to breathing. You go to circulation. Then you go to disability. 
Most people believe that if a person is bleeding with arterial bleeding, that they will die. It's an emergency. Of course, it's an emergency. But reach your hand into the wound, use your fingers, and pinch the artery closed. Emergency is over for now. Now do your ABCs while continuing to pinch that artery, unless you are medically inclined and you have forceps to pinch it off. You can create similar mental triggers that will allow you to pull your brain back to the moment and restore your full cognitive ability. I'm a big proponent of visualization. I think that in the absence of a real-life scenario, which most of us don't have, the opportunity to have these massive training events where we pretend like there's a natural disaster, some type of unrest, man-made disaster is not common. Without that opportunity, visualization is the next best thing. Part of planning is visualization. You have to have some type of imagination to understand what could have happened and what the opportunities are for escaping a certain scenario. And what I do in my group of people and my teams is we have, we write down scenarios on strips of paper and we put them in a jar. And once a month we reach into that jar and we pull out a scenario and then we work out that scenario. It might take a day. It might take the whole weekend. It might take a whole week, but we plan it out. We do it. We work it because we want to survive. And to developing a strong plan, training and preparing yourself, you can't help but visualize these survival scenarios. These visualizations, I like to think as vaccinations in your brain so that your brain has some familiarity with the situation in advance. And think about it, vaccinations. When you get the flu vaccine, which I do not advocate, your immune system will have a familiarity with the flu. If you visualize events, your brain has familiarity with the event and you can recognize what's going on and react instead of having it be a completely unfair thing to your brain. That doesn't mean that I advocate laziness. What I mean is I do not want to train or prepare because I can just visualize. Essentially, though, you have it actually experienced a similar event your brain can already be familiar i think that's critical i train in martial arts i've learned early in my training that i work stuff out in my sleep i'm constantly working through problems all night long i would be training in my mind and thinking about if i'm getting choked out in a session or training or in real life I would think all night long how I could get out of that chokehold. And oftentimes I could develop a method for solving the situation just in my sleep and through visualization. Then I would try it out in the real world when I got back to training. And most oftentimes it would work. That's how powerful visualization can be. If you look at world-class athletes, military, and all these different high-level occupations, visualization is really a key component of training in those situations. It should be in your training regimen as well. When I was talking about those mental triggers before, let me give you three examples of that. You don't have to use these examples, but feel free to use them if you want to in your training or feel free to come up with new ones. It's important that you come up with some type of 
catchphrase or short synopsis, something that will help you remember each one of these. The first one, I'll refer to what I like to call the Noah trigger. All these triggers are to help pull you out of a situation, to help you become more aware of what is happening around you. The Noah trigger, you're feeling anxious. You think it's time to get your family out of a looming potential disaster in the pre-disaster phase, but you're afraid of what everyone else around you are going to think of you. You're afraid that everyone will laugh at you or that everyone will ostracize you. And I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but you have to remember the moment that it is the trigger is to help you understand that you're in that phase. If you're feeling anxiety, this anxiousness, then that's probably a sign you're subconsciously picking up a danger that maybe you're not consciously picking up. The reason I call it the Noah trigger is remember in ancient stories, everyone laughed at Noah when he was building the ark. He remained true to his plan while everyone else laughed at him or stayed in a state of frozen denial. That's a great metaphor for your situation. Do not allow other people's lack of planning and denial of a situation detour your actions. You might have done all this planning, but if you let other people who haven't done any planning dictate your response, then you're going to be no better off than them. And who cares what they think? The second one I like to call the pioneer trigger. This is the whole idea of I can't do it. I need all these material possessions, all of this stuff to survive. In the modern world, we surround ourselves with so many things, so many stuff. I think that every new gadget that comes out, we feel as if we just have to have one more thing to complete our lives until the next new gadget comes out. 30 years ago, almost nobody had a cell phone. Now everybody feels like They would die without their cell phone. They couldn't possibly make it a day without it. That is not real. The truth is that you don't need 99% of the things that you have in your life. Yeah, they provide you comfort and maybe a little bit of security, even though it's probably false security, because the real security comes from your knowledge and training. 30 years ago and beyond, from many generations to the beginning of time, the people had a completely different mentality. There's this primal, tough person inside of you that is designed for survival on this planet. Even though survival is not easy and not always comfortable, don't let your desire for comfort kill you or your loved ones. There's examples of human beings all around you that are living under subpar conditions in other countries or indigenous people. Even people just living their lives in North America or the United States. We live really well. I think we get insulated from the fact that most of the population in the world doesn't have electricity. And you know what? They do just fine. The third one is what I call the iPhone trigger. The whole idea that technology will set you free. I think that is a real killer. One of the things I'm going to talk about later in this series is that technology is going to be the first thing that's going to fail. 
Not only should you think that technology could fail, but you need to know that technology will fail you in a crisis situation. There was a situation in Austin, Texas years ago. There was a kite festival. I don't know how many people showed up, but it was in the thousands at this local park. And suddenly, everyone's cell phones stopped working. It was super crowded. A father would be in the restroom, separated from his wife and child. There was no way for them to get back in contact, and they had no prior plan. If we get separated, we'll meet here. They tried to call each other, but all the cell phone towers were overloaded and the cell phones weren't working. Then I've heard story after story of people that basically were lost from each other for 10 to 12 hours because they did not have a plan. This wasn't even a crisis situation. It was a festival. But once again, that's what we call a gridlock. Your GPS is not going to work. Your cell phones are not going to work. You need to rely on the things that you that are real and that don't operate on technology. You don't want to be relying on something that when you need it most, when your life is on the line, that it's going to fail you. Don't fall into that trap. Let's go to step two. You have to be prepared to leave. And when I talk about prepared to leave, what I'm really talking about under this step is your physical planning. And like I said before, you need to have a plan that you can leave within as little as 30 minutes notice. When I say 30 minutes notice, that is probably one of the worst case scenarios. However, that being said, you may not even be able to make it back to your house if you live on the north side of town or down south of town. Not being able to make it back to your house means that you probably won't even have that 30 minutes of planning. You may have just what you have in your vehicle. And there's different stages of planning. You need to have a plan if you have that 30 minutes. What are you going to grab during that 30 minutes? You might have a plan that if you just get stuck somewhere with your vehicle and your family, you can't make it back to your supplies, that you have some basic things already with you. The first thing that is critical is that you develop rendezvous points. Remember, talking about technology failing, there's no such thing as technology in this scenario, especially in urban populations in the United States. Everything is digital. Remember when I talked about technology failing, communication is going to be the first thing to go down in a crisis. And once again, we'll be back to the Stone Age. And think about this a second. When all technology fails, you really are going to be limited by how far you can shout. You need to develop rendezvous points. This is a given. If you're going to be escaping or trying to escape with multiple people, which most people have a loved one or a friend that they want to coordinate with to try and get out. With technology down, if your loved one is on the other side of town and you have to walk 10 miles through a crisis to get to that person, you need to calculate what route you're going to take, even alternative routes, and how long it's going to take you to get there. Then you have strong, clear boundaries around those points because it's important that you've said you're going to meet at a certain point. You need those boundaries. For example, we're going to be here at least 24 hours after the initial crisis. Then we're going to leave and go to a, to point number two and so on. 
That way you're not waiting for someone who is never going to show up and you get stuck in that same place. There are clear boundaries. They know that after 24 hours to no longer look for you at that certain place, they're going to go to the next point to try to meet you there. It's critical to have points along your route. If you're traveling, you don't want to break down your escape route into smaller rendezvous points. In the military, we trained that if you were ambushed, you need to be able to get back together at a rally point. If something goes wrong and you're separated at some point, then you would have to set a rally point that you would be able to go back to. In the case of the military, it's a rule that if something critical happens, you're not going to go back to the last rally point that you set. Instead, you go back to the rally point before that one. And that's because the last rally point you set may be pretty close to where the actual incident happened. It's a similar concept with setting up these rally points for you and your family or your team. If at any point you're separated from your group where something goes wrong or if you need to hook up, hook back up later, there are these landmarks along the way where that can happen. If a rally point is suddenly in crisis and there's something going on there and you're not able to get to that point, then your plan will dictate that you would then go onto a pre-planned alternate, pre-planned alternate point. You need to have many situational plans in place. There's no way to plan for every contingency. I think that it's important that you pick some major possible disasters, whether that be a hurricane, earthquake, tornado, or something like chaos, a terror attack, a war on United States soil, or a breakdown of government services to plan for, because all of these scenarios are very viable. Pick a few of those and figure out what your plan is going to be in those different situations. What you're doing is developing a skeleton plan. You have to be willing to deviate from that plan as needed, though. You're not creating a 100% step-by-step thing. You're creating just a rough roadmap for yourself to follow. If you need be, you, you deviate from it, but it will give you some kind of a backbone in a serious situation. And one important thing to do initially is map out and learn all possible travel routes in and out of the area in advance. One cool thing is that you can start thinking outside the box. In a real crisis, you may need to use travel routes that are not designed for vehicle travel. And some examples could be cutting through woods, cutting through a park, driving on the shoulder of the road, or even driving on a sidewalk. Do not count on obvious travel routes after that pre-disaster phase. They're going to be the first one to jam up. And you need to start thinking more like, is my vehicle vehicle capable of getting through this? How much clearance is there? Do I have an alternate route? How can my vehicle physically get from here to there? I live in the mountains. I have several rally points between the closest town and Ranch 2.0. We have a staging area with supplies where everyone will meet 48 hours after crisis. If not everyone is at the staging area in 48 hours, we leave two people at the staging area while the rest moves forward to another portion someplace else, to, to another piece of property. 
at the Ranch 2.0, we have supplies and provisions that will get us to the main ranch. We wait another 36 hours for the rest of the team. For example, the team of two left at the staging area will wait 24 hours for anyone that has not already showed up. If nobody shows up or they do show, they have 12 hours to get to the, to the small ranch or another portion of a different property before we go to Ranch 1.0. This is just an example of how we've set things up. You need to set your times and the rally points to fit you and your people. You have to go out and physically check your rally points. Are there alternative routes? Can you go through the woods? You may have to get out and measure the distance between that boulder and that tree to see if your vehicle's going to fit. And maybe you will scrape the paint off, but you can get through and you will survive. I have all these different routes that I know I can take in a crisis situation. If you live in an urban environment, you're in the most danger because the density of the population is going to make it a lot harder to escape. And like I said, the gridlock as an urban environment is going to be an extreme threat to where you are. Whereas if you're in a rural environment, there's a lot less people per square mile and you'll have a lot less gridlock. Also, the crisis is probably not going to be nearly as extreme in a rural environment. A lot of times the real crisis is not due to the actual event, but due to the human reaction to that event. The last thing in this step that I want to cover is that community is extremely important. You're going to have a much easier time or much better shot at surviving immediately and long term if you're able to part to be part of a team like your family, trusted friends or the neighbors that you trust. If you can work together and trust them, it's important to start establishing through your planning process who your community is, who are the people that you care about that you can trust. I'm not talking about every friend or family member that you know. That's not realistic. Ask yourself who is the most important and who is part of your core team of like-minded people. Bring these people in on the planning process. I think we get this illusion from glorified stories and Hollywood movies that there's a lone survivor and they can just go out and survive on their own. There may be people like that here and there, but the reality is that human beings have evolved and grown to be living in a culture and a community where different people are bringing their different gifts and strengths to the table. It's a survival philosophy. Build a community and get rid of this idea that you're going to go out on your own. You're not going to make it out there on your own. Imagine the difficulty of having nobody with you. Who's going to stand guard while you sleep? Who's going to have your back if and when you're attacked for your supplies? I have a small handful of people in my uh, community. They each have a tiny home planted somewhere on the property for their privacy, yet close enough to the main house for their for security. Each of their tiny houses are stocked with their own supplies. The main house, root cellar, and various other places are stocked from the community pocketbook. We all chip in here and there. And sometimes one person will bring a case of vegetables and canned meat to put in the cellar, while another will bring a five-gallon container of fuel for the underground generator or two 10-gallon tanks of propane or blankets and medical supplies and so on. Then the stockpile grows. We all contribute to the community storehouse 
and we don't keep score on who brought what. We do inventory on everything and rotate the food when we have training days. It's a slow process, but once you establish a plan, you need to work on that plan. One recommendation is that you approach your people from a place where everyone can empathize with. If you're somebody that believes that the breakdown of government is imminent or that there is going to be some end of day scenario, let's face it, those ideas can alienate people that would really want to be in your community. So you approach your people from a place of joint understanding of, you know, something's going to happen. We're not sure what it is. It could be a hurricane. It could be a tornado. It could be riots. It could be anything. So we need to be prepared. So let's prepare for a natural disaster. Everybody has heard of natural disasters or has been subject to being in one. This is something that's realistic and everyone can relate to. Preparing for a natural disaster is something that anyone can get behind and support. So talking to your friends or loved ones from that scenario and knowing that you can apply that plan to other or more extremes in those scenarios will help others jump on board. And keep in mind that some loved ones and friends don't want to think about this type of stuff. They'd rather put blinders on and not think about it at all. They might think, well, if something were to really happen, Kate is supplied and I can go to her for supplies and security. That's a wrong way of thinking. Because for me, those who plan with me, train with me, and work with me will be secure with me. Step three. Be able to leave. And when I'm talking about the ability to leave, in the case of most people, I'm talking about physical gear. But I guess you can throw in physical skills into that as well. I don't want too many people to get caught up in thinking that you have to have these mad survival skills. Although survival skills are critical. It is one of these things that you're going to develop going to have to develop over a long period of time as you plan and prepare. I think it's important to come from a place of setting realistic expectations and realistic goals for yourself, being completely real about where your skills are and what your physical gear you need to survive is the best beginning. You're not on some television show like Naked and Afraid, Dude You Screwed or Dual Survivor. There might be a handful of people in the world who can do all that sort of stuff. But oftentimes when a lone person or a person within a small group tries these things, you're really setting yourself up for failure. I remember when I was a little girl a long time ago, following around nine brothers, exploring survival skills. I was taught basic survival skills and I excelled over my brother's. I used to go around bragging that all I needed in my survival kit was a piece of paracord. But I was only nine then. And looking back, I was an idiot. That was not reality. I needed a lot more than that. And I just didn't understand that concept. The funny kind of ironic thing is that if I was really good enough to only need a piece of paracord, then why would I even need a paracord? Don't get me wrong. I was a great backyard survivalist. I just didn't have the skills at the time to go out in the woods and survive during a disaster. 
And I always urge my students not to Hollywoodize your skills. You have to be totally realistic with yourself. Lying to yourself isn't going to get you anywhere. And once again, I said this in the beginning. If you don't have either a skill or a supply before a crisis breaks out, you're probably not going to get it. You have to prepare yourself in advance. A good example of this is last year when there's this COVID epidemic or what they call another flu. A lot of things in stock that were in stock were sold out. It's happening again. So if you want something, get it now. Order it online or buy it in the store. If you want a skill, take a class now. Don't try to do this stuff when it's too late. You must be prepared to leave without any extra gear. But if you get a chance, you could give yourself 15 to 30 minutes to load up critical things like firearms, extra food, clothing, shoes, etc. If I'm stuck in another state, I know where I can go to acquire extra gear for my journey to the rendezvous points. I have locations all over a tri-state area that if I'm caught in a disaster in any of these states, I can get to these locations and have supplies enough to get me home. But it's imperative that you go over in your head and maybe even list it out in advance physically what you need to take in advance. If you only have 15 minutes, what would you take? If you only have 30 minutes, what would you take? If you have an hour, what would you take? So that you're not fumbling around in your house just searching for random stuff to take. It's not smart to just load up your vehicle with willy-nilly stuff because you'll be bogged down with just stuff that you don't even need. This isn't a rush to grab everything you own or everything that will probably fit in your vehicle. It's to grab things that you need, not want. And along with that, I acknowledge that there's some personal things that you might want to take with you if you have the time. This is why you need to already have an idea of the items that you need to take with you, if not already packed in a gear bag. Don't die because you want a couple of photos. It's not worth it. Yes, some photos are nice, but it's not worth it. All that being said, if you have to be prepared mentally to leave without any of your personal possessions, be mentally prepared. No possession is worth dying for, and the whole idea of what I've been talking about is to help you survive, not die trying to save personal possessions. It's better if you and your family live and your possessions go to some loser looter than for you dying to go back and get those possessions. Step four, knowing when to leave. And this is probably one of the most important of all steps. If you know when to leave and you leave at the right time, that all might seem really easy. You might just get in your car and drive off down the highway and you're gone before the gridlock. But knowing when to leave is critical. And unfortunately, it's also the hardest to qualify because we've got so many different types of situations. And it's not just reasonable to think that either you or I are going to be able to think of every type of scenario in advance. And there's a couple of tips, but you're going to have to be the one to make that decision. And you're going to need to be on your toes, always looking for the major warning signs that a crisis is looming. 
don't wait until the general public panics or the crisis hits. So that means that the moment the news goes out, that the reporters, if you trust the news sources, are now saying there's an evacuation or you know everybody needs to leave, it's too late. You're going to hit the gridlock. You need to be ahead of the game. You need to be ahead of everything if you don't want to be caught in the melee. Even if you did get caught up in it, most people aren't going to be prepared to leave in 30 minutes. If you're prepared to leave the moment that the newscast goes out, you're still going to get out before they are. And other people are going to linger for a few extra minutes because they don't have a plan. You want to have a written emergency plan with your family, your team, your staff, whoever. One of the important things about this plan is that you can refer back to it. And we talked about the kinds of triggers that can pull you back to reality. Your written emergency action plan can be one of those things that you physically have to be where you can think. I have no idea what to do. This is a stressful situation. Let me just read this again. Then you can can connect to a time when you've had more clarity of thought, when you were able to really put down on paper what you thought you should do. And that will help you to develop an actual plan for the situation you are now facing and utilizing your predetermined plan. You also want to make sure that you're not afraid to think outside the box. If a disaster is coming, the gas pumps are all going to be out. Not only that, people are going to be scrambling to get to what little gas is left. If you're almost out of fuel in your vehicle because you thought, I can fuel up later. If you happen to have a lawnmower where you don't have to have a mix of gas and oil, odds are that you have a gallon or two of gas. Not only in a gas can that you can take with you, but you can also siphon the gas out of the lawnmower and use that to get yourself a little bit further out of the fray. A localized breakdown of social order is another thing. You start to see mass rioting, social unrest, and a breakdown of social order. Yeah, none of us have seen that in this country, right? That could be the warning sign that you need to get out now. If they're coming to your neighborhood, we live in a culture and a society where we cooperate with one another because of choice. But when people stop choosing to cooperate or live within the bounds that we have set as a society, that's a really dangerous situation that you need to get out of. And you need to use that to your advantage. You're going to get yourself out because I know that now you are going to make a plan with your family, your team or your staff. I'll give you a few basic triggers So it'll help you get out of dodge when it's needed. If there's a forecast of imminent danger, that seems like a no-brainer. But you'd be surprised at how many people stay and wait out the storm. Why, Why don't they leave? Because they've heard the forecasts before. The biggest hurricane in history is about to strike the mainland. And the damage is great. But they've stayed before and they were fine. I say to you, leave. If there's a forecast of imminent danger, leave. If nothing ends up happening to your house and it's perfectly safe, then that's a bonus. You implemented your plan. You went on a camping trip with your family for a day or so. It's no big deal. But if your house is destroyed, you just saved your your life and those of your family. The next one is a breakdown in local government services. That is a clear warning sign as you begin to see a breakdown in the police, fire service, medical services, power, and water. 
It could be from a natural disaster. It could be from some type of breakdown in the things that help us keep our society together. But those thing, kinds of things are going to lead to social panic. And panic is going to lead to desperation. And desperation is going to lead to a dangerous situation for you and your family if you do not, do not know how to handle it. So you want to get out of there. You're tough and you say, oh, I'll stay home. I can handle any cretin that comes to my property. You aren't being realistic and you just put your family and team in harm's way. You want to go from the localized urban cities to more rural areas where you're going to have less people. More people equals more danger. Your biggest danger in most of these situations is other people versus the elements. If a pandemic is imminent or starting to spread to your area, you need to prepare yourself in advance. Panic is extreme when it comes to germs and disease because it's something that we cannot see and it will cause extreme panic in people as we are already witnessing. It's not just a disease itself that's the danger, but the people who are panicking and trying to get out and who probably won't have any issue stepping on you or your family to get themselves out. So you need to avoid that. Be prepared to have everyone think you're crazy. Try to do your best to temper yourself to not go off the handle with some wild theory that people are going to solidify that you've lost your mind. Ultimately, if people think you're crazy because you're leaving the area, don't let your ego get in the way of you and your family survival. That's what it's about. You did your homework. You know what it's about, what's about to happen and who cares what they think. What's important is that you and your family are safe. You want to make sure that when you do leave during that shock period that you keep calm and level-headed. You don't want to make it look as if you're rushing back and forth from your garage to your house to your car and just throwing everything into your car and leaving. You want to make it look more like a day-to-day activity. You're calm but efficient. Do it as quickly as possible without seeming rushed or frantic. You can practice doing this daily so when a crisis happens, your actions are second nature. Being frantic strokes the fire and makes people in your area start to panic, which can make you a target. If somebody thinks, well, you're more prepared than I am, then they can come over and try and see what's going on. You want to ensure that you keep calm. And while it's good to have your community with you and make sure everyone is safe, you want to ensure that yourself and your family are ready to go before anyone else. It's like being on an airplane. The stewardess always tells you to put your mask on before you help anyone else. Step five, be prepared to survive at all costs. I've talked about the ability to leave and know when to leave in a disaster situation as being critical as to the avoidance of the situation in general. I'd much rather be the guy who never gets lost than the guy who was lost, survived, and rescued. Avoidance is great. But when it comes down to it, you have to have physical skill and knowledge in order to be a true survivor. You also need the strength of character so that it will allow you to make it through the tough situations. It's a mistake to think that material gear is a replacement for knowledge and skill. In reality, it's the exact opposite. Knowledge is a replacement for gear. If you can get out of a situation, that's what I'm talking about. You're in a survival situation. Either you've gotten out and now you have to survive in a place somewhere in the woods or you cannot get out 
and you're stuck in the gridlock. There's times you're stuck there for whatever reason. There could be a ton of different reasons why you're stuck there. You have a family member who can't get out and you decided that you're going to stay back with them or your vehicle is broken down or everything is blocked and you have to stay bugged in for a while longer. First of all, you have to be mentally prepared to survive. When I was going through law enforcement training in the military, they used to tell us these different stories of people who had survived these crazy, incredible situations. They didn't give up. They kept fighting to stay alive. That's not something that you can learn from other people. It's something that you have to develop inside yourself. And one tip is to latch on to something that's important to you. If you're in a survival situation, if you have a family member who you care deeply for or something like that, latch on to that and let that be your kind of guiding light, your strength that will get you through. If you're a parent, use your child. In these moments, all of your training and preparation is going to be put to the test, and knowledge is true power. One of the things that I tell my students is when I'm training for survival, I'm training for surviving with nothing. I know that's not a concept that most people are going to feel attainable. It's like I said before, I'm training to survive with nothing. I train to survive without any modern materials, only things that are sourced from the natural world. The reason I do that is not because I think that it, it's realistic that I'm going to end up naked and without anything in a survival situation, but that the reality is that I don't know what I'm going to have to go through in any any given moment. Maybe I will have rope and maybe I will have a water container and maybe I won't have a knife or maybe I will have a knife but no water container. I don't know what I'm going to have. And so I have to have skills. I have to create skills and I have to learn skills and I have to learn to think outside the box and supplement. The only way to do that is to have a little of everything that could supplement you in a pretty much any type of, of scenario. And the only way to do that is to start to try and wean yourself off of these possessions that you have and these survival tools as we call them, and replacing them with knowledge. Let me clarify. I don't mean physically replacing them. I still have my go bag in my truck, and I'm still glad that I do. But I mean mentally replacing them. Nothing is so important that you can't live without it. Now, the first thing you do is you do not panic. And we talked about panicking and the fact that you're not going to be able to think clearly Human beings are incredibly intelligent creatures. We just refuse to use our intelligence. We have survived a long time on this planet, and we're fully capable of making quality decisions, even without a whole lot of experience, because we are intelligent. But if you panic, you're not going to be able to think clearly, and you're not going to be able to make good, informed decisions. If you're well-prepared, that's going to help you to not panic, because once again, you're going to be able to fall back on a plan for clarity of thought. That time that you're stuck in place, that you're not stuck in place and you're not panicking, you need to wait. Calm yourself down. Don't make any rash decisions and wait. Try not to draw attention to yourself. You want to remain low key. You've got these people who potentially might want to take what you have. 
So be cautious of other people. I'm not saying be paranoid of other people, but I'm saying just be cautious of other people. You want to avoid people that you don't know and you don't trust. Personally, I look for a large patch of woods because I feel comfortable in the woods. I've spent a lot of time in the woods. But in the woods, you might find people like yourself that can help you and you help them. You want to be cautious of them, though. Feel them out and feel that they're sincere sincere, and not a danger to you before you start to trust them a little bit. I don't think you should be paranoid about anybody, but use your body language skills to determine if you can trust somebody. Not everybody is out to kill you, especially if they're packed like you are and in the woods like you. But you still need to practice caution. If you're going to live off the land, you need to have the training and experience in order to live off the land. Another component that comes into this is a much broader topic. You need to connect to the landscape, connect with nature, learn your area. We have to start reconnecting ourselves to nature. One thing I like to remind myself is take a little piece of black electrical tape and cover up the bottom half of my gas gauge so that I can't see the needle anymore after it goes below half a tank. That inspires me to create a new empty. I keep supplies in my trucks. I have an advanced plan. Always keep your vehicle well-maintained. Keep a cool head and adopt, adapt to situations. Your plan is just a guideline. If it falls apart, don't give up. Take a deep breath. Use your intelligence in your training to make good decisions. We're completely surrounded by useful things in this world, and there's all kinds of stuff lying around or that you might be able to grab that you can source and make into something else. You have to be willing to improve. Remember, that you're always going to be prepared. I don't want you to go listen to this series that I'm going to be doing and think that because you've heard the material that you're instantly ready and willing to just walk away. You need to practice. You need to make sure that there are steps to prepare yourself for any of these situations. And there are certain tips and tricks that you can do. You can take a couple of days and try living without air conditioning. Try living without your electricity. Try to spend the night with nothing but a candlelight. I do it all the time. The more you practice, the more you learn. And the more you can teach yourself, the easier it will be to keep a level head and the easier it will be to survive. This ends the broadcast for me tonight. Thank you for joining me around the campfire. You know my motto, train hard, train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. And this is Kate. Signing off until next time. You say you love this country. You say you really care. But America is dying.